Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for April 2014. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, Hydra Hailer, Lee Zachariah, and with me, as always, is... Hi there, I'm uh, writer, hyphen, director, hyphen, most definitely summer soldier, not looking for the win- forward to the winter at all, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us this month is our very special guest... Hi! I'm Drew McWeeny. I am the lead film critic at HitFix. Uh, you may also know me as Moriarty, which I wrote under for over a decade on Ain't It Cool News. And uh, I am delighted to be here, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on. We are delighted to have you. Now, one of the uh, one of the films, usually there's uh, a disparity in release dates, but we've all had Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier, has come out in both of our nations. And it's a little exciting because it's actually about something. Like, I'm a fan of the Marvel films, and I know, love or hate the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight films. They were definitely about something. But I love that in the midst of this greater narrative Avengers-building arc, they're still able to make individual films that feel like they're actually about important topics. It's interesting because they really are setting up so much with Winter Soldier, and it's kind of breaking the status quo And even above and beyond the fact that, yeah, it has thematic heft in a world where we are now dealing with drone warfare and surveillance states and, you know, every day kind of brings a new revelation about how they're watching or how they're listening or how they're gathering data. And it's – I think they play on a very real anxiety. But the idea that they can do that and at the same time service three other films down the road and make sure everything fits, it's the craziest, weirdest jigsaw puzzle that I think has ever happened in movies. And it works as a blockbuster. It works as a spectacle. It's, um, it's, it's so much fun. It's not afraid to be bombastic at times. It's not afraid to be sexy, but also has this incredible subtext. Also, I like the fact that you've got a film called Captain America that doesn't trade in any sort of flag-waving nationalism and is all about kind of what freedom and and actual patriotism is and takes this very kind of anti-government agency kind of bent and kind of builds on the whole thing not only with 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 drones and surveillance and how to make an omelette you have to break a few eggs kind of philosophy but also with dealing with soldiers with post-traumatic stress syndrome maybe saying that hey maybe war is not something worth glorifying i just thought it was was fantastic Mm. i i'm impressed by the action in it for the main reason that while I like the Marvel movies a whole bunch, as action movies, they frequently fail because that's not the skill set of whatever filmmaker they bring in. And man, I did not expect from the Russos to get some of the best hand-to-hand combat we've seen in any Marvel movie so far, and I would say kind of top tier for superheroes in general. I totally agree. I was blown away by the opening sequence of Cap on the Boat. It was like Jason Bourne as a super soldier. Well, that's, that's something interesting as well. How many times now do, do we have that argument after a superhero movie comes out, Batman never kills, Superman never kills? They, it feels like such a handcuffing and more of a dramatic convenience than anything. Here, that opening raid, Cap is breaking bones and shattering <laughs> sternums and kicking ass up between ears. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it's like the first time I've ever watched a superhero film. This is including every Batman film ever made. And I'm looking at Cap going, this is not a guy you fuck with. This guy is dangerous and intimidating and i love that and we just never see because these guys are meant to be the greatest hand-to-hand combat combatants the world has ever seen and for once a superhero film conveyed that and i thought that was wonderful it's interesting that he is unafraid to do damage if he has to and yet for for a lot of people they would think of captain america as the square superhero Mm. 
but he certainly doesn't feel that in the way they've reconceived him in these movies. Mm. I, knowing nothing about him uh, before the first film, I thought there was no way they could ever make a film about him in this day and age because he's just too corny. And the way that they approached it was inspired. It was probably the, the film that's impressed me the most because I thought everything was stacked against them and they pulled it off completely. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the best Black Widow has ever been on film as well. Giving her something to play, giving her multiple agendas, like a real fleshed out character. Like this is the first time watching one of these Marvel films that you're thinking maybe Black Widow could have her own film. Well, they've done a really good job of introducing her into the movies, giving you enough information that you realize she came from the other side She had to have had an era where she would have been considered a bad guy, and she made the switch at some point. Yet now, little by little, they're starting to hint at what that is. And at the end of this one, where they basically say, if you do this, your secrets are out too, and you're screwed, it, it makes her very interesting because now we're at that point where whatever they do next with her... We're probably going to learn some of that, and it will pay off, as opposed to have front-loaded all of that into a movie about her. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It kind of clears the decks a little bit, so then we can just get down to telling a story once her film, if it ever does, uh, comes along. There's something interesting in Captain America, where in the beginning, when he's got that list of things that he has Mm. to seek out... Do you know that we got a different version of that to you, Drew? Yeah, I, I read that they were that for each market they changed it in some way and yeah. tried to make it more specific and local. It, and it was the most ridiculous thing because we're sitting there in the cinema watching a film called Captain America, and he's got a <laughs> list of cultural things he needs to seek out, which is like Steve Irwin and Skippy <laughs> the Bush Kangaroo and Vegemite. And we're like, not. Captain Australia wouldn't seek those things out. <laughs> Captain Australia would have a list of great American TV shows to what it was like. We appreciated the effort, but it was so, it was such a strange choice. Please tell me that you guys are actually in development uh, with, and you're going to make Captain Australia. Cause <laughs> dude, I would watch that. It's, it's on its way. <laughs> Instead of Robin, his sidekick is koala. <laughs> <laughs> it's wombat. Cause it has bat in it. <laughs> Oh, one Batman. Oh, why aren't we writing this? Oh, that's it. Dudes, I, I know you got to go now because you got to go right to the copyright office yeah. and you're going to register that. And that's awesome. <laughs> I, I, I feel that the uh, a lot of people accuse the Marvel Avengers universe, uh, cinematic universe of uh, every film being entirely in service of the franchise. But I don't feel that when I watch particularly films like Winter Soldier, whereas I did get it watching Amazing Spider-Man 2, The Rise of Electro, which is in its own universe, and yet it feels like it's one gigantic setup for sequels down the road. I I would imagine that any executive in Hollywood who sees The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is going to spend the entire film fully erect, thinking about (laughs) the money they can make if they do this. And it really is a trailer for a movie we won't see for three more years. It's not a film on its own, no matter how charming people are, no matter how... And look, I think Webb has a fantastic sense of how to convey the feeling of web-slinging. Like, there's stuff that I like. That's why it frustrates me that the whole film is in service of, and next time on Spider-Man... And also, I don't know, since Sony have been putting their actual logo at the start of films, does that make their rampant product placement more or less obvious? Like, this just felt like the world's (laughs) biggest budget Sony ad. (laughs) 
<laughs> the whole film, I just kept thinking about Malcolm McDowell in In Good Company talking about synergy, which is a shame because I really, just despite not expecting to, I really enjoyed Webb's first Spider-Man film. I think both of those films have elements that are amazing. Like, I, while I'm in the cinema, I think, oh, this is fantastic, I'm really enjoying this. Particularly whenever Andrew Garfield is doing anything on screen, I think he's one of the elements that works so well. And there are a lot of action sequences that are brilliantly staged. And yet, the moment the film's over, I think, hang on, what was that? Nothing happened. I mean, things happened, but it didn't feel like a story was told. Well, this is the thing. The, the, the first film has a real focus on character and on how characters feel. And there's, there's a real dynamic there between uh, Andrew Garfield, who I think is the screen's best Spider-Man to date, and Emma Stone, and even, you know, Martin Sheen and, um, and Sally Field in the first film. And there's, and, and, and there's a lot of really great character stuff going on. And it's like, it feels like the, the, the filmmakers got handed a reboot, but nobody counted on them actually caring about the characters, and that was what was so beautiful about the first film. This film, they've decided to kick out most of the screenwriters and bring in Kurtzman and Orchi, who bring their Transformers touch to it, and suddenly character is out the window, where we're just everything's over-plotted and there's too many characters and nothing means anything, and we're just kind of stepping through these Blake Snyder save the cat sort of beats. And as you say, Drew, it, 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 it all just kind of amounts to a bridge between films and it just feels so empty and again with electro like why does every villain have to be syndrome from the incredibles now it's weird how close that is to the um jim carrey arc from batman forever it is yes pretty much exactly the same (laughs) setup transformation scene payoff it it's freaky how they they're borrowing from a movie that i think is kind of universally disliked um, especially something as specific as that. It's, al- it's also the tone, because he's playing it in this broad, I'm a nerd, look at me carrying my blueprints <laughs> throughout the city and adjusting my glasses, which is just does not feel like it fits into this film. Yeah, oh, no, he's he stumbled in from an In Loving Color sketch when you look at him. <laughs> at the- and it's, it's, again, talk about weird choices. That is, I, I would expect that at this point in his career, Jamie Foxx would be more about I want to find a interesting way in and a guy who you're sympathetic towards and all this, that he's revenge of the nerds broad in this mm. movie. Yeah. He, he goes full nerd to, to paraphrase Tropic Thunder. It's pretty embarrassing. Yeah. I think if they just gone with the green goblin, like I got to the end of the film, not even knowing why it's called rise of electro because electro feels so inconsequential to the whole film. He just feels like a device to get other things going. And really he's not the big bad. He's not the one we should look, be looking at the rise of. And I'm thinking, why don't they just make this film all about green goblin? Oh, that's right. They're setting up the sinister six movie. And that's the only reason. And it, it feels like because they jam so many in everybody's moment where they become a bad guy uh, that's it. It's a turn on a dime. Hey, Spider-Man, help me out. I'd like some blood. No, fuck you. I will destroy the world. <laughs> and it's the this unmotivated switch in every case. Yeah. And even even that felt weird, that Spidey wouldn't give him his blood. Even that felt like, really? Like, the relationship that they have, It's I kind of expected Peter to kind of at least test it, at least try it, at least. It's like, no, I know that this is going to hurt you. It's, well, you don't necessarily know that. And it just felt... Like, manufactured conflict. What is it that defines Peter Parker? It is guilt over an action, or guilt over his role in somebody else's misery. If he had given his blood to Harry, oh my god, of course, Harry, you're my best friend, and I haven't seen you in years, you might die. Here's my blood. 
and the blood was rejected by Harry's system and turned him into the Green Goblin, mm. then again, Peter's guilty. Peter will feel like, fuck, I made him. I shouldn't have done it. In this case, he's his hands are clean. The Green Goblin is just a scumbag. That's all. Mm. Mm. Although I think we can all agree that the film would have been saved with one more shot of Dennis Leary. <laughs> I think if there'd be another one of him gazing. <laughs> this month also saw the release of The Grand Budapest Hotel. I am the worst person to judge the relative merits of Wes Anderson films because I love all of them without exception. Even that one that you're thinking, oh, that one's not so good, whichever one that is, I love it. <laughs> but the Darje- Oh, no, that one too, okay. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. Love Darjeeling. <laughs> But um, and so I, I want to say Grand Budapest Hotel is is possibly his best film, if not you know one of his best. But uh, coming from the, me, that means nothing. I, you know, the moment I fell in love, and and I adore that film. It's got to be a great film year if that doesn't find some spot on my list at the end of the year. Mm. It, it, the, but the moment where I fell in love was the moment I realized that they were doing a a Russian nesting doll structure, where one person is looking at a plaque about a writer. Then we go into the writer's life as he was going to write the story. Then we go into the story that he listened to that influenced what he... It's awesome. I love the way he keeps dropping you further and further into the reality of the world so that when you do get there, it's fine that it's stylized and fairy tale looking. And we're hearing a story. This isn't literal. It's what this author pulled out of what maybe was real. Mm. Yeah, and, we're, and we're, we are almost hearing it sixth hand. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's like a really interesting narrative game of telephone where it, it, who knows if that's actually if any of it <laughs> out, but yeah, absolutely. And Anderson really refines this style of, of these sort of surfeats of chaos that happen within these extremely formal two-dimensional images and everyone talks in a very formal way but everything that happens is so chaotic and I think it's that um dichotomy that's so interesting and and so addictive in his films. One of the things that I've only recently noticed is that one of Anderson's constant things is he has adults who have the mental and emotional um, age of children, and he loves children who have the emotional and intellectual weight of adults. Mm. He He's great at writing super precocious kids who are very smart and very mature and doing things, and he's equally good at writing man babies. <laughs> It's that's the thing. It's, everything we're talking about is this dichotomy, isn't it? Like the thing that impressed me the most is this kind of this beautiful refinement, and it really a lot of it is from you know the Stefan Zweig stories that have kind of influenced this outlook to the Lubitsch films that have influenced mm. his approach. A lot of it seems to be Wes Anderson's elegy for a lost age, a lost age where we were more gentlemanly and refined and cultured. But then you've got these amazing blasts of vulgarity. Wow. <laughs> God, and, and does, does Ray Fiennes look like a starving guy who just found a water fa- uh, a, just, he, it's amazing how he digs in and you get this sense that Rafe has been in the starter blocks for years now waiting for another great role and man he kills it it feels like he's been working with Anderson for decades because he, he gets his style I don't think there are many actors who would understand Anderson's style that well and he gets it like you know they've been working together for years 
It's spectacular. Shakespearean training helps in finding the music in Wes Anderson's movies and finding those rhythms. Mm. Since Shakespeare is all about rhythms and a certain kind of way to deliver. And I, I think maybe that training really plays in when you do a movie where it is so distinctly Wes Anderson's voice and universe. We've never, ever seen Fines be anything like this. Like, you know, we've seen him pop up in things like in Bruges and, and a few other comedies here and there. But this is, yeah, he just, he, he arrives in Anderson's world fully formed, speaking, speaking the lingo and just taking the screen every. And this was going to be Johnny Depp for a while. Which, wow. Yeah. I forgot. Wow, that would be, I can't imagine that. Exactly. And now it's like, I, I kind of, part of me would love to have seen Depp take this on and see how well he was able, he would have been able to immerse into the world. But on the other hand, I don't want anybody else but Rafe in this role. He's just incredible. As, as is Willem Dafoe as a human attack dog. Yes. yes. <laughs> but no, look, it, it's probably good in the end that, that Johnny Depp didn't do that because this way we got Budapest and we got Transcendence. Um <laughs> I, wouldn't well, it be great if Wes Anderson stole him away from Tim Burton, though? Yes. And yeah. that was it. They never worked together again because he was busy with Wes Anderson movies where he doesn't have to just wear a funny hat and mug. That would be That's, beautiful. Like, imagine Johnny Depp as Wes Anderson's, you know, next Bill Murray. Yeah. That would be kind of amazing. Mm. I but, miss that Johnny Depp, dude. I really do. I, I miss being somebody who used to say, holy shit, why doesn't the whole world know Johnny Depp's amazing? Yeah. Now, unfortunately, we're on the other side of that, which is, God, I wish you would go back and prove it again. Yeah. And Transcendence is a painful reminder of all of this. (laughs) To to be fair, it is one of the most thrilling new films of the early 1980s. I, uh, yeah, this the idea of the. I actually said to someone beforehand, and this is completely true. I will give this film five stars if there's a scene that features green text on a black screen, like DOS-like. And it happened, and I turned around in my seat and had the thumbs up uh, from the person. It was. Uh, it's crazy. This completely outdated idea of what computers are, and, and what a computer scientist is. This stuttering pre-Bill Gates type, uh, you know, short circuit. <laughs> no, it's, it's, as, it's as spot on a look at um, computer culture and where we are as Superman 3 was. <laughs> <laughs> it's My like, favorite hacker in film history has got to be <laughs> Richard Pryor. Things no computer can do, ever. <laughs> Didn't he? And uh, wasn't it after taking like a computer, like a, a community college computer course or something? <laughs> And midway through, wrote this groundbreaking, brilliant, brilliant software that pilfered from all over the world in bank account. Like three classes, and he's up and running. Mm. The learning annex really helped him. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I love about this film is that it's completely motivated by what's going on in the screenwriter's head. Like he, uh, a great example is, uh, oh, J- Johnny Depp's inside the computer and he's controlling humans. Therefore, if we capture a human, we can create a virus using his base code. I don't know why anyone would jump to this conclusion, but everyone goes along with it. Um, here's, the, here's an argument I actually have with somebody who's trying to defend the movie to me. They talked about how at the ending you realize Johnny Depp was never bad. He was just trying to do it the wrong way because they talk about like the advances that then made and how he could have saved lives. That's just bullshit wanting your cake 
and wanting to be able to eat it too. You, mm-hmm. they, they want him to go crazy, so we have to fight him and bring him down. But then they also want to go, ah, but it's Johnny Depp and we like him. And it's the mm-hmm. oddest, dullest role that – how do you drop out of Grand Budapest Hotel and go, yeah, I'll do this film where I'm, I'm just talking on a computer screen? He literally could have Skyped in his role. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. Also, one of the dullest first acts I've seen in memory. Right? Which is emphasised by the fact that the whole film is a flashback, so all dramatic <laughs> tension is undermined. Like, we know what's going to happen. Yes. There's no question. Well, I think it takes a whole lot of smart people to make a movie that stupid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, and Fister doesn't seem to bring anything to it. Like, even as a visualist, yeah. there's a few oh. nice shots of, you know, glass kind of labs, but... You think this is the guy behind the great, you know, Christopher Nolan cinematography of the last 10 years? It's just, it's so uninspired and just so standard issue, bog standard, rock, you know, studio film. It's utterly nonsensical. Mm. It's just, it's just awful. It'd be hilarious if it wasn't quite so tedious. I think with a lot of this, uh, this high tech stuff and specifically like people, Hollywood getting their hands on the singularity and that theory and, and being afraid of it, I don't get why the default choice is always we should be terrified of technology. It seems like Hollywood, in general, would want to push the idea that new is good and technology is awesome. And why do they always make that choice, man? Is it because they're afraid of looking too out of touch? Where like, I like the trailer for the new Transformers movie is just is, isn't great that Mark Wahlberg's from Texas. Um, <laughs> It just seems like they're so desperate to show how, you know, we're, we're not, we're not you know, the liberal elite. We're, you know, down to earth. We don't like technology. We like farming or whatever. We're, <laughs> we're, we're the good old boys. Yeah, that's it. I, I don't know. Maybe that's it. But look, <laughs> I, I will do a super edit of, of Transcendence, which will be the film will be exactly the same as it was, just with shots of Dennis Leary every now and then. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think that will do it. Film. No film that could not be made better by a constantly recurring Dennis Ghost lyric. (laughs) All right, for our uh, middle segment, uh, we're going to look at the quandary of release dates uh, between American release dates and international release dates because it's always been accepted wisdom that the American market gets Hollywood films first and, you know, everybody kind of has to wait anywhere from the same day to three months later to get it. But the tide has begun begun turning, particularly in regards to superhero blockbusters. And it happened a little bit with Marvel. We got the Avengers a couple of weeks before the Americans did, and now uh, Spider-Man 2 has done this. Uh, Lee and I have seen it a couple of weeks ago. Drew, you just saw it last night. But do US audiences feel slighted, or is it kind of something that's like, well, this balance should be redressed now because the international market is kind of getting more powerful? I, th- I think for the general public, the attitude is uh, they don't know and they don't care. Like mm. when I worked in theaters, uh, the people would come into the box office and they wouldn't ask for the title of the film. They'd look at the posters and walk up and go, one for Eddie Murphy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and you'd be like, okay, Eddie Murphy. I know which one that is. And I, I think is they, they don't care about international release dates because they don't pay attention to them. The press that are freaking out about it in America keep saying, but it's an American product. We should have it first. I, I hear – the studios say that it's about piracy and battling piracy. The only way that makes sense to me is if it's day and date mm. everywhere. Because then there is nobody with an advantage and there's no other market ch- just foaming because they haven't seen it yet. 
So I get it if you do day and date. I don't get it at all if it's two years or two two years early. No, if it was uh, <laughs> two, two weeks early for someplace else in the world, that that shouldn't bother audiences. I don't think. There was a time before the internet where we would wait up to six months for a big film. And that was fine because no one knew, you know, unless you collected movie magazines, you wouldn't know when things were coming out overseas. And there weren't the conversations you were involved in, you know, there, there were no spoilers or there were no people sort of going, OK, we've moved on from that. What's the next thing? And the Internet's really changed that and made everyone hyper aware, particularly, you know, where we are in Australia, that, oh, my God, we're a week behind on that blockbuster. Or can you believe it, it was months before the Lego movie came out? And it's something that's sort of come into sharp focus for us. And the arguments we've been hearing, you know, from, from American colleagues is, of course, these are American products. They should come out in America first. For us, most of our entertainment comes from America. We don't have an industry of our, our own, really. And so we sort of feel like when we slap down, you know, money for a ticket, that is the same as an American putting down money for the ticket. You know, we're both funding it in equal measure on a person-by-person a -person basis. And so, you know, I, I think there is this growing sense of entitlement uh, amongst international audiences where we're like, well, you guys have the market cornered, so we don't really have a choice but, but to, you know, use your product. It's interesting that, like a mutant gene, the internet seems to have grown this sense of entitlement within, you know, people these days. But do you think, though, like, the studios say piracy, but do you think the fact that, People, like viewers are kind of getting shitty about it. Do you think that's almost entirely spoiler driven? Do you think people now are terrified? Because usually it's us being terrified of getting spoilers from America. Now we've got Americans terrified mm. of getting spoilers from the rest of the world. Do you think that is a driver there? I think for every market, at some point, you've been the guy who was catching up on Breaking Bad three years after it went off the air, where you're just not in the cultural conversation because it didn't happen at the same time. I, I think that it's great that you guys get it first as far as you know you seeing it there's no problem with that it's just that i don't i don't understand the excuse mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i mean look the, the conversation has to start somewhere i wonder if part of it is that they want the international grosses which they see as an easier market for spectacle to start rolling in so the story when it opens in america is it's already made 275 million dollars around the world right yeah. i mean i wonder if that's part of it now there is a bit of that, isn't there? That that sort of like it's done three hundred million globally, and you haven't even seen it yet, which suddenly makes it because I guess everything's kind of big when you've got a lot of blockbusters of seemingly the same size and the same prestige. What's the next edge? What's the next thing to kind of get? You know, why should we see Spider Man over Captain America over Godzilla over whatever? And and that is suddenly the new bargaining chip, isn't it? It's the new like, well, this, you know, this it's the new sizzle. It's this has done three hundred million. You haven't seen it yet. This is the thing that 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 kind of irks me about this whole issue. I think Drew is dead on. I think if you really want to attack piracy globally, you release it day and day. And I think everybody's happy. You mm -hmm. get it at the same time. Everybody has the conversation at the same time with the internet, globalization, whatever. Everybody's on the same, you know, page. It just seems to me like the same sort of thing as Blu-ray region codes. It's it's it just seems like a cynical kind of ploy for distributors and 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 studios and marketers to leverage one territory against another. And that's what kind of irks me personally about this issue. And I think maybe gets under some others' skin as well. 
I, it got me. It did get me thinking. This debate about the fact that there are some Australian films which premiered overseas first, like The Loved Ones and Wolf Creek. And the first time I ever heard about the Spearig brothers' Undead was on Ain't It Cool News. It was Harry talking about Undead, this great Australian film. I was like, what? I haven't even heard of this. So I certainly understand the argument of why, you know, that's our cultural thing. Why is someone else getting it uh, before we do? Uh, look, I, I do agree. It should be day and date around the world. And it does seem like, you know, cinema culture might be on the way out. And if we're moving towards a more streaming way where everyone's watching it in the lounge rooms, maybe global day and date will happen. I hope they eventually do it. The The one argument I've heard in its favor is that the way it reduces piracy is more piracy happens internationally. So if you release it to them first, they won't pirate it because they've seen it. And then you can just tackle the American market. Even that I don't buy fully. Yeah. Although that said, Drew, you're going to love Guardians of the Galaxy. We had a blast with it. <laughs> So, Drew, please tell us, whom have you picked for your Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month? I've been thinking about this guy a lot lately for reasons that will be very obvious, and I don't know that he as much love as was heaped on him when he passed recently. I still don't know if he got his full due as a filmmaker, and that's Harold Ramis. Excellent. Yeah, that was shocking news earlier. I, didn't, I hadn't realized he was sick. That was a bit of a bolt out of the blue uh, when he passed this year. No, it's just a huge loss. That guy, so multi-talented and so still vital and I think had a lot left to say and do. And it's just crushing, man. Mm. And his fingerprints were over so much of the formative cinematic comedy experiences of our generation, certainly, but of the last 30 years. And there's even kind of, you know, that that sort of group of him and Reitman and... uh, Landis. Landis and Zachary Abraham Zucker and, and, and those guys, are, you know, he was very a very present, very powerful part of that little collective um, that, that came about at that time in the 70s. And, and we're still feeling that impact today. God, yeah. I, I've argued before that between SCTV and SNL, um, modern comedy would not exist the way it did in our media if those two films hadn't created the talent pools they created and utilized them. These guys had amazing showcases, really showed what they could do, and then once once they jumped to film, I thought they never looked back, man. Uh, the guys that really succeeded were guys that just knew how to do it and made a huge, long career out of it. I'm, I can't believe that Ramis has his fingerprints on as many genuinely formative films for me as he does. Mm. He's, he's amazing. Mm. What what was it uh, that, that first alerted you to him? Like, Was it his TV work or was it one of the films? I was a big SCTV fan when it was on the air, and I thought all the guys on SCTV were funny. But Ramis, as an actor, wasn't really the same as like John Candy on that show, or Dave Thomas, or Joe Flaherty. Those guys really were comfortable in front of the camera. I I think Ramis was a great comedy mind who helped shape a lot of that, but he was never the best of the SCTV performers. It was films. Once he jumped to films, man, uh, Stripes, I saw theatrically, and... I just, for a year and a half, quoted that movie incessantly <laughs> because of how hilarious I found it and how weird it was. And Ramis is a huge part of the on-screen appeal of that movie. Well, the thing that interested me is how he possibly created the Bill Murray screen persona. Oh, I, I, yeah, it's definitely, I think he has a huge hand in it. And if you guys have read about the production of Caddyshack, it's 
you know, a minor miracle <laughs> that the film actually worked and came out and holds together as a movie. And he had no idea what he was doing uh, on the feature level at, at that point. And I think looking at what he pulled off and looking at how he used Bill, he, he basically called the shot for the next 25 years. And you're right, created that persona with him. I mean, but so that's the thing, because he co-wrote Meatballs, which was Murray's starring debut. Then there was Caddyshack, then Stripes, then Ghostbusters. It's like, <laughs> they're the four bedrock films that created that persona. Yeah, I, and in Caddyshack, so much of that character, I've, I've got like four drafts of that script from as they were developing it. And Spackler was never that character on the page. It really was something that between Bill and Harold, they built on set and they just made a little mini movie about the freak who lives at the golf course. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that was what really worked was he realized as long as I have this guy, I know his voice and I can write for him and he'll kill it. Yeah. Yeah. You get that sense of a real team at that point. It's, it's interesting. You mentioned that about Caddyshack in 1980, which was his, um, Ramus's directorial debut that you wonder how the hell it hangs together as a movie. Even watching it, you get that feeling that it is kind of a series of sketches with this kind of slobs versus the snobs narrative kind of you know, the tree that it's all vaguely connected to. There's stuff in there that's just completely unmotivated by, by the plot. It's just bizarre shit that's happening at this golf course. Because I, I only saw Caddyshack for the first time recently. It had been a big gap in, uh, in my viewing. And I knew that both Chevy Chase and Bill Murray were in it. But I knew that they had parallel stories, and I wasn't really expecting a scene between them. And I, I'd, of course, heard about the, the, the feud between them. And so it was a real shock to me because I'd always wanted to see Chevy Chase and Bill Murray do a scene together. Uh, I, I think they're the two most interesting sort of on-screen personas from that group. And then seeing that they had a scene together and that it was so great and then discovering that the three of them cooked it up over lunch the day they shot it, you know, that uh, Chase, Murray and Ramus just sat around and talked about what the scene should be and, and then it turned out that well is 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 extraordinary and sort of fits in with the anarchy of the rest of the film. I think the animosity between them makes that scene work because Chevy's physically uncomfortable being in Carl's space <laughs> and Carl has no sense of boundaries and is just <laughs> all over Chevy from the moment he walks in. So <laughs> I think both of them must have used that because the energy in that scene is fantastic. Yeah. And they really do feel like at any moment knives could come out. <laughs> It's it, and and it's a film that kind of I think takes that anti-authoritarianism, but very kind of middle American sort of rebellion. You know, it's kind of it's you know against golf courses and re, re, you know rebellion against you know fathers and this kind of authority figure thing. And it's like, and it's this very unfocused kind of rebellion. It's this kind of let's just smash it. It was something that was kind of pioneered in the Ramus co-written script for Animal House. And Caddyshack is kind of an extension on that theme. But I think the reason Caddyshack, I think, gets away with it more than a lot of Ramus' subsequent films is because it's very much taking place in a cartoon world. I don't think it's any coincidence that Caddyshack opens and closes with a shot of a puppet gopher. <laughs> no, it's that immediate thing. Like, okay, we're in we're in a cartoon fantasy fantasy land of you know a middle America, you know, casting off the shirt and tie and breaking stuff, and you've got these great comic actors doing these riffs, and and kind of it it all kind of makes a weird kind of sense. 
except for me, I, I just can't deal with Dangerfield in this film. It just feels like this kind of borscht belt comedian keeps breaking into Saturday Night Live, trying to <laughs> hijack it. And then and it, it just kept taking me out of the film. Rodney's act in that movie is just Rodney's act. You get the feeling if Rodney was by himself in a hotel room, he would still be doing that. Like that is <laughs> yes. he is constantly he has to talk shit to inanimate objects and it's just anything because that's him. It, it really was just let's put this guy in the movie. Let's stand back and do whatever you want now for five minutes. Cut. Moving on. Mm. God, it feels like that. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas at least the Murray and Chase characters feel like characters within this world and 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 i think they the, one of the joys of the ted knight performance which is like you know turn it up to 11 turn it up to 13 mm-hmm. um is because mm-hmm. that's the only way we feel sorry for judge smales because otherwise you're just watching this guy has worked to kind of build a golf course and have a nice boat and like, this guy just rocks up and starts smashing it for <laughs> no reason other than he's an asshole. Yeah. And it's like, if you don't make Judge Smales a maniac, then <laughs> you begin to sympathize a little uncomfortably with him. People talk about their favorite performances from that film and I feel like very few people give Ted Knight his props. Mm. Good God, that guy was sharp. Yeah. As wonderful white line readings, you know. <laughs> it's one of the scenes I keep quoting in my head is when him and Spaulding are going up to the bar and Spaulding's reciting all the things he wants. I swear he- to God, that's what was in my... I, literally before you said that, I was <laughs> laughing, thinking of, you'll get nothing like it! <laughs> Which I, I used to do to my co-writer constantly when he, when he would ask for something. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, night in that moment is so good. <laughs> It's one of my favorite lines in the film. <laughs> so yeah, he goes he goes from that to National Lampoon's Vacation in '83. Yeah, I I think it's Chevy at the perfect crystallized moment of being Chevy Chase. Hmm. Um, that that is by far the best work he's ever done on film as a sustained comic performance. The first movie, I and you talk about the difference between Caddyshack and Vacation, and it's simple. It's that script. I think the National Lampoon's Vacation script is awesome, uh, incredibly funny. And, you know, that was John Hughes before he became friend of the teenagers, John Hughes. And it is absolutely of a piece with the stuff he would write for the National Lampoon magazine. A great character, horrifying jokes. I saw Vacation in the theater as well. And one of the biggest laughs I've ever heard is the cut to Aunt Edna tied to the roof of the car. <laughs> And people people gasped. Like, the joke was so crazy that they gasped and then fell apart laughing. And uh, I love Chevy's final speech. We're all going to be whistling zippity-doo-dah out of our assholes. <laughs> he cracks. What dad has not felt that after a long day of blah, 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 blah. And then you snap. And, boy, he goes so much further than any father actually would. It's, uh, it's glorious. I, I love that it's that combination of zaniness, but it's so thematically on point that he would like kidnap a security guard in order to take <laughs> his family through a fun park. I, I love that. I, I just, I don't know, like, I, I, I remember growing up loving this film and having those kind of reactions as a kid and then watching it now and just being horrified at, at Clark Griswold. He has one fight with his wife immediately heads to a bar and starts hitting on other women. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, not 
even go to a bar, someone starts hitting on him and he kind of goes with it. No, no, he instigates it. It's like, what is this person? He is a real product of his id, which is something really uncommon to see a father character given that quality. Mm. And maybe well, that's something that people connect with. Yeah, I think he's one of the most derelict movie fathers since Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters. <laughs> yeah, he's an um, awful father. He doesn't. Yeah, he had two kids. He doesn't remember Audrey's name. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't. He, he doesn't go into space at the end and, and leave the planet or whatever. But uh, he's <laughs> here's the difference between Vacation and what I think European Vacation did wrong. In the first film, there is they have an arrogance about we're going to do this road trip. It's going to be awesome and an enthusiasm. And then they are victimized the entire time they're on the road. Karma just lands on them. In European Vacation, they are the ones doing the victimizing. Mm. It's never them. They never really suffer. The first movie, what makes it beautiful is that Chevy is Job. There is an angry God who hates his vacation plans <laughs> and just fucks with them the entire time. Um, and I, I think that makes all the difference in terms of whether it works and is hilarious or they just look like the asshole family. <laughs> I'm going to say, I think I was leaning towards the latter. And another weird thing, too, like with, when they're in the ghetto and it's like they're, they're a little bit clueless. But the, the fact that the African-Americans in this section are actually actively trying to rip them off from second one. Like Clark has not even done anything to antagonize them. They just do it. And it's, it's so incredibly racist. Um, it, it's funny the the jump for Ramis directorially between Caddyshack and uh, Vacation. He got much better at framing the joke, so that love the joke or hate the joke, he communicated it really clearly. The, what you're talking about with Clark in the ghetto, um, I'll admit, it's a hilarious shot where he's having the conversation and all four tires are being stolen, and he has no idea. <laughs> mm. He plays it so beautifully. In terms of being oblivious, that I, I think, and that's a single shot. Like, Ramus was very good by that point at visually thinking about how to build a joke and not just verbally. Which is interesting because I don't think anything brings into sharp focus how well those first two films did that as Club Paradise in 86, where it, it kind of falls apart a bit. Like, he's still got the anarchic character versus the establishment, but for some reason... Almost none of it works. Has there ever been a clearer case in, in film history where a role has been written for a certain actor and that actor has not been gotten and they've just hired someone else but kept going with that other actor's shtick? Because oh, yeah. this was clearly written for Bill Murray. Mm. It's, it's obvious 10 minutes into the film. It's like this is a Bill Murray character. They've hired Robin, Robin Williams, and this was at a time pre-Good Morning Vietnam when Hollywood had no idea what to do with him. And yeah. they just made him play it like Bill Murray. I, I was so excited. that The first summer I worked at a movie theater was that summer, 86. And we got the giant standee for Club Paradise, which I hadn't heard of yet. I'm putting it together. And as I'm putting it together, I'm reading the credits block on the standee. And I'm like, holy shit, Robin Williams. Holy shit, Rick Moranis. Holy, look at all these people. And it's made by Harold. This, this is going to be the most amazing comedy this summer. And I remember sitting through the first screening stone-faced mm. and just thought they mm. missed the mark completely, which was shocking. I, I really figured that was just Ramus fell apart and couldn't do it twice. It's kind of in Marx Brothers territory 
in terms of millionaire fascists trying to take over an island and, you know, rebellion and all this kind of stuff. And it's stuff we've seen done well in comedies before. Like, it's not necessarily natural comic subjects, but it's stuff we've, we've, we've seen people do them well. And this film just misses all of it. Just ham-fisted at every single turn. It's so weird. Here's how badly Club Paradise did. He, he makes Caddyshack, which is a monster hit. He makes Vacation, which is a monster hit. He co-writes Animal House, which is a monster hit. He directs Club Paradise and goes away for seven years. Mm. I mean, that movie was such a failure that Harold Ramis couldn't get a movie made for seven years. That's And he, my- co-written, he co-written Ghostbusters. Don't yeah. forget that. Yeah, I mean, oh my God, the, the money he had already made for the system by that point should have been inarguable, but Club Paradise kicked him in the balls. Mm. Wow. Do you, do you think that its failure really hurt him? Do you think it was something he was quite connected to? No, I don't. I, I don't think it was. I, I really don't feel like it came from the same place as the earlier films. And mm. I think it's more the formula is uh, we're going to go to this place. And what's the place this time? It's a vacate. It's a resort place. Great. OK, so a resort. And then we'll do the snobs versus the slobs again. And we'll do that. Like I, it feels very calculated. While the earlier things really feel like they are driven by this is hilarious. I, I have to share this with you and get it right. Mm. Yeah. Well, with Groundhog Day in 93, there was none of that anarchy from the previous films where you just feel like they're making it up on set. The Groundhog Day is so precise that it feels like a Ramus film, but also feels a million miles away from what he did before. And it's, uh, I think it's his best film. Far and away. And, and not just his best film. One of the very few films that I would put on a short list of a perfect execution of a concept. Mm. That, mm. Groundhog Day is flawlessly funny, funny till the last moments, and plays fair with the concept. Okay, if this is the concept, let's really dig as deep as we can to imagine this is real. Mm. What would you do if this was you? And they, it's phenomenal that they have actual sequences that are just about him going crazy, him losing his mind literally because of the situation before he snaps back into sanity later. It's it's a fantastic script. It's a fantastic character and perfectly directed by Reynos. Mm. The thing I found interesting with this film, watching them in sequence made me think about what had come before and what I didn't respond to as much in the early films as I did with Groundhog Day. And it's this kind of, again, back to this idea of this kind of middle American rebellion and sort of this kind of small anarchy. There is a real lack of consequences in the first three films and that Caddyshack got away with it because Caddyshack was a cartoon. Suddenly, Groundhog Day is almost this perfect thematic turning point because he's still dealing with the same ideas of rebellion. But it's almost like he's got a... With with the Groundhog Day concept, Phil Connors is given a safe space. He can fuck up anything he wants. He can hit on girls. He can eat anything he wants. He can destroy things. He can punch people. He can do all this stuff until he finally gets it all out of his system and realises what's important and who he is. And it sort of almost informs the stuff that will follow from Ramus. Like, Ramus's filmography changes from here. And I feel like Groundhog Day is this perfect tipping point. And I think that the conceit actually allows Ramus to kind of have his cake and eat it too. It kind of is the sum total of everything he has tr- been trying to say before and after in film. 
it, it talks to the rebellion, but it also talks to the kind of the cell, you know, the, the kind of uh, spiritual kind of, you know, spiritual gap that needs filling that he'd kind of get into later and, and trying to manage one's life and trying to be a good person. It kind of, it, it sort of combines before and after. It's kind of the perfect Harold Ramis film, really. There was a great uh, interview he gave where he said that he had Christians coming up to him going, it's the perfect Christian movie. Uh, rabbis coming up saying, it's the most Jewish movie I've ever seen. You know, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, everyone thinks it's geared to their worldview, which is, I think, one of the secrets to its success. You know, you're talking about why religions respond to it, why people think that it, it speaks to them. It's, it's a movie about enlightenment. I think if most Hollywood people had made this film, if most writers, directors had done it, her kiss at the end would be the magic thing because it's about love. Mm. And I don't really feel like that is the theme. I think it's different. I, I think the way they pay it off is that he becomes enlightened about his place in the world and how to deal with people and how he has to be. And it's a Scrooge transformation, basically. Um, but beautifully written so that it is not the way you expect it to work. And also allows Bill Murray to be Bill Murray as well within within this beautiful construct. He gets to play that great character of his to the hilt. So what is the Ramus style? This is what I'm trying to figure out as, as a filmmaker because, I mean, there have been fairly different films up until now, but I don't understand how... Because Multiplicity in 96 is a great film. And in between those is Stuart Saves His Family in 95. And for the life of me... The, the filmmaker who is so precise at both comedy and concept in Groundhog Day and Multiplicity, in the middle for this film that is neither funny nor interesting, I can't see that through line. Here's the thing about Stuart Saves His Family. It's what Harold had not done until that point was he had not really made a Saturday Night Live movie, and he was not connected to Saturday Night Live. So that group of guys came to him and did separate things from that. Stuart Saves His Family was in the middle of that rush by Lauren Michaels to make a, a film, a feature-length film out of everything. Mm. So we get It's Pat, we get The Coneheads, we get The Ladies' Man, we get all these Saturday Night Live it, you know, spinoff movies. Stuart Saves His Family, it, it's the strangest take on it, and it really feels to me like he's trying to make a real movie. Not a sketch movie, mm. not a comedy in the broad sense, but an actual movie about this absurd character that was on Saturday Night Live. And the supporting cast, when you look at them, Harris Eulin and... Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh, Vincent D'Onofrio is his brother. Is, uh, he's playing a very different film, and not a bad film. I think there's some stuff that's going on that aims at being real. And, you know, Franken, that is a dedicated performance by him, because he keeps up Stuart, which I can't imagine playing and how draining that is, but for the whole film, it's... <laughs> The tone feels all off, but it feels like very well-worn ground since in terms of indie comedies, in terms of Little Miss Sunshine and Garden State and these kind of stories about dysfunctional families that have we've kind of seen filmmakers come to master over the last, you know, over the 18, 19 years since Stuart Saves His Family. And it almost feels like a broken prototype of that. I can see that. And also, to something, I looked at a, uh, a profile of Ramus uh, in the New York Times um, from 10 years ago, and they say this, after becoming financially successful in the 80s, Ramus began in the LA way to look inward. He tried couples therapy, family therapy, parenting therapy, past lives therapy, and personal therapy. He divorced and remarried. He lost 40 pounds on a liquid protein diet and then regained it and more. He joined a men's group and became something of a Buddhist. And that almost seems like 
that seems like the reason he seemed to connect to this project. Uh, can I see that movie? Can I see that? <laughs> I would be so in. That sounds phenomenal. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. I'm sorry, that's his bio? Shit. Um, wow. <laughs> apparently he had this revelation and um, he wrote New Life on the back of a business card and stuck it to the inside of a, of a kitchen cupboard. And it's apparently like it's still inside this cupboard in his ex-wife's house to this day. So he goes on to Multiplicity, uh, the, the Michael Keaton cloning comedy, which I think really holds up. I yeah, think, you know, it's a film a lot of people kind of knock, and I think it works really well. I mean, not Groundhog Day well, but I, I think it's mm. really successful, and I think a lot of that is because of Keaton's performance. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's a pretty impressively mounted film, especially considering it's 96, so digital technology was... Yeah, you know, it's mm. yet yeah, there. And it was more about composites and then about performance. But yeah, again, you can see that he, there's some ideas he's trying to get in there and there is uh, a finesse to the way he shoots it. It's not my favorite of his movies, but there's there's a lot to like and a lot to look at in terms of his personality and what it is in those films. Mm. And again, it's this sort of going through acting out, but there's consequences as well. And yep. It's, it, it's this kind of maturation of the Ramus theme of this kind of rebellion. Um, and, but it, it still speaks to us today. Like, uh, you know, we're, I was reading a piece the other day about the, the so-called busyness epidemic and do we have enough time? And, do we, and it's like this is the stuff Multiplicity was speaking to 18 years ago. Mm. And so I don't think it's lost any of its power in terms of theme. You know, playing the reality of that but also the absurdity of, you know, the situation itself. And then you throw in a comic curveball of clone number four, who's one of the best monkey boy characters in <laughs> cinema history, surely. It's right up there with Steve Martin and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. <laughs> yes, yeah. totally. Uh, Analyze this, I think, worked in a way that some of his others didn't, well, Analyze That didn't work as well. Bedazzled in 2000. He had this, uh, this strange run where he sort of, I don't know, he started to feel a bit more like a studio director than, than someone with uh, a distinctive voice. And I wonder, I wonder why that is. Was it just the system? or I, I think he, he got to a point where the, you know, we, we talk about the 70s as a really fertile time for dramatic directors and a really fertile time for guys who made experimental, strange things that were part of the mainstream. But it was also it was a pretty great time for comics. You could make an R-rated movie if you felt like it. You could do pretty much anything you wanted as a joke, and they let you do it with your voice intact. That version of our industry stopped existing, and it was pretty much the early 90s. So I think he did. I think he looked at it, took a guess at which way the wind's blowing, and just said, all right, I'll just make what you guys want me to make. It's interesting because thematically those two still feel a little bit connected to the rest because, I mean, in Analyze This and Analyze That, you've got characters going through therapy and trying to find who they really are and stop, you know, stop this kind of self-denial. Uh, Bedazzled is essentially the Groundhog Day multiplicity model of going through a bizarre situation and doing it until you get it right. So they don't, they don't seem completely un like I don't think that he ever decided he wasn't going to make movies that still had some sense of who he was. I just think he was probably starting to just look at scripts that were coming in and going, all right, I get that. I could do that. That's, that's fine. I just don't think he fought the system after a certain point, and I think he gladly got absorbed into it. And there's something about his last two films. So there was The Ice Harvest in 2005 and Year One in 2009 that – even though the films themselves don't really work, there's this sense of where he wanted to go as a filmmaker. Like, there was a bit of a reinvention 
in the cards, where with the Ice Harvest, that he wanted to do a dramatic noir film, and he wanted to maybe, you know, make, I don't know if he wanted to make more of those, or whether he just wanted to make this one, but it sort of, it seemed to herald a new direction for him, and year one, working with this new breed of comedians, like, you know, Jack Black and Michael Cera and Paul Rudd and so on, and I, I think it's funnier than its reputation suggests, but it, it did feel like he was sort of entering this new phase. Yeah, I, um, when I was on the set for year one, and was talking to various cast members, to a person, every one of them said, are you kidding? I, I didn't read anything. I 100% took this job because Harold fucking Ramis is directing it. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Like, all those young guys, uh, I remember Michael Sarah was seriously still nerding out over, fucking Harold Ramis is right there. Like, <laughs> And I had a conversation with him on the set. Everybody broke for lunch, and they, the publicists have been trying to get me to talk to him for a little while, we just didn't have the moment. And so he sat down, he said, what he wanted for lunch? And for about an hour, maybe a little bit more, we, we talked about everything, like everything I always wanted to ask him about, whether it was Caddyshack or whether it was Ghostbusters or the SCTV days or, and he was insanely forthcoming and told phenomenal stories. It was just like, absolutely, I'll discuss those with you. Hmm. Uh, there are so many filmmakers that get pissy about if you want to talk about a 20-year-old film. And there was none of that in Ramis. And I, I, I think he just was, he was the guy you think he was. He was that genuinely awesome comic presence. Hmm. I think on that one, for him, he was just as excited working with these young, upcoming comic personas and doing what he felt like he did with, like you said, creating the Bill Murray persona, or at least perfecting it. I think he enjoyed doing that for the younger cast just as much as they enjoy being there and having it happen. So what do you think he was doing with the Ice Harvest? Because it sort of seems like he's trying to... That was kind of his take on a Coen Brothers film. It's like, oh, yeah, I kind of like what those guys do. Maybe I should try that. I I think I like the the Ice Harvest a little bit more than you do. I, I think it is darkly comic i think it's still funny um oliver platt in that film crushes me every single time he's Mm. on screen uh he is that's one of my favorite drunks in a long time like (laughs) man he's funny and i think there's an absurdity to how things unfold that yeah it's a noir story but there's also that human comedy and maybe even the sad comedy that i think still marks it as an interesting extension of what he did it's definitely got that kind of the universe is saying fuck you to these characters that, that, that I quite enjoy. I, I think he got what was funny about noir, but did it in a real noir movie. Well, there is. I, I mean, I didn't really respond to the film itself, but there are sequences in there. There's one sequence in particular, which I can't describe because it's inherently a spoiler for if there's anyone out there who hasn't seen it. But it's so well directed and it's so chilling. And I remember being excited watching that scene thinking oh my God, Harold Ramis can do a scene like this. I didn't know that. And and there was a bit of a thrill in that seeing a comedy director show their dramatic, thrilling uh, chops. Yeah, I, I think he certainly had a really strong cast for it. And I think they meshed. And But they're real performances and they're playing real people. And 
yeah, it's it's an interesting film for him. I, I'm really glad that he made at least one that felt like this, where it's comedy for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it does feel like something completely different thematically to everything else he ever did and proves that he, he's sort of kind of looking for new inspirations and new material and other things that interest him. Well, yeah, I mean, he is absolutely sorely missed and it was really great to sort of fill in the gaps in this filmography and see just how much he'd achieved in uh, in his career. So uh, thank you, Drew. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my! hey, my pleasure, guys. I, I have appeared on a number of podcasts talking about movies, and genuinely this is one of my favorite podcast conversations I've had. So thanks, man. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. So glad to have you. And we'll see the rest of you next month. You look like a goddamn chimpanzee. 